He never knew what other departments were in the place, for the witch happened to glance up at one of the curious clocks that adorned the walls. She said it kept infernal time. At any rate, his nibs was due shortly. They must hurry to the apparition chamber. That awesome place was in a class by itself. Murals showing the torments of hell covered the long walls. At one end was a throne, at the other a full-length portrait of Hisnibs himself, surrounded by numerous photographs. The portrait was the conventional one of the vermilion anthropoid modified by barbed tail, cloven hooves, horns, and a wonderfully sardonic leer. The rest of the pictures were of ordinary people, some vaguely familiar to Mr. Feathersmith. His vileness always appears to mortals as one of their own kind, explained the witch, seeing Mr. Feathersmith's interest in the gallery. It works out better that way. Two imps were bustling about, arranging candles and bowls of incense about a golden pentagon embedded in the black composition floor. There were other cabalistic designs worked into the floor by means of metallic strips set edgewise, but apparently they were for lesser demons or jinn. The one receiving attention at the moment was immediately before the throne. The witch produced a pair of earplugs and inserted them into Mr. Feathersmith's ears. Then she blindfolded him, patted him soothingly, and told him to take it easy. It was always a little startling the first time. It was. He heard the spewing of some type of fireworks, and then the monotone of the witch's chant. Then there was a splitting peal of thunder, a blaze of light, and a suffocating sulphurous atmosphere. In a moment, that cleared, and he found his bandage whisked off. Sitting comfortably on the throne before him was a chubby little man wearing a grey pinstripe business suit and smoking a cigar. He had large blue eyes, several chins, and a jovial backslapping expression. He might have been a Rotarian and proprietor of a moderate-sized business anywhere. Good morning, he said affably. I understand you want transportation to Cliffordsville of four decades ago. My executive committee has approved it, and here it is. Satan snapped his fingers. There was a dull pop and an explosion of some sort overhead. Then a document fluttered downward. The witch caught it deftly and handed it to his nibs, who glanced at it and presented it to Mr. Feathersmith. Whether the paper was parchment or fine-grained asbestos mat, that gentleman could not say, but it was covered with leaping, dazzling letters of fire that were exceedingly hard to read, especially in the many paragraphs of fine print that made up the bulk of the document. Its heading was Compact, between His Infernal Highness Satan, known hereinafter as the Party of the First Part, and one J. Feathersmith, a loyal and deserving servant, known as the party of the second part, to wit. The perusal of such a contract would have been child's play for the experienced Mr. Feathersmith, had it not been for the elusive nature of the dancing letters, since only the part directly under his eye was legible. The rest was lost in the fiery interplay of squirming script and had the peculiar property of seeming to give a different meaning at every reading. Considered as a legal document, thought Mr. Feathersmith out of the depths of his experience, it was a honey. It seemed to mean what it purported to mean. Yet, at any rate, there was a clause there that plainly stated, even after repeated readings, that the party of the second part would be duly set down at the required destination, furnished with necessary expense money and a modest stake, and thereafter left on his own. The Compensation 
queried Mr. Feathersmith, having failed to see mention of it. You'll want my soul, I presume. Dear me, no, responded Satan cheerily, with a friendly pat on the knee. We've owned that outright for many, many years. Money's all we need. You see, if anything happened to you as you are, the government would get about three quarters of it, and the lawyers the rest. We hate to see that three quarters squandered in subversive work such as improved housing and all that rot. So you'll kindly give us your cheque. How much? Mr. Feathersmith wanted to know, reaching for his checkbook. Thirty-three million, said Satan calmly. That's outrageous, shouted the client. I haven't that much. There was to be one percent off for cash, your vileness, reminded the witch sweetly. Mr. Feathersmith glared at both of them. He had been neatly trimmed right down to chicken feed. His first impulse was to terminate the interview then and there, but he remembered that given youth an opportunity, he could make any number of fortunes. He also had in mind the dismal future forecast for him by the doctor. No, the transaction had to be gone through with. He meekly signed cheques for his full balance, and an order on his broker's for the delivery of all the other valuables. There was one more thing to do. Sign the pact. Roll up your sleeve, said the witch. He noticed she held a needle-tipped syringe in one hand, and a pad dampened with alcohol in the other. She rubbed him with the cotton, then jabbed him with the needle. When she had withdrawn a few cubic centimetres of blood, she yanked the needle out, unscrewed it, and replaced it by a fountain pen point. Our practitioners did awfully sloppy work in the old days, she laughed, as she handed him the gruesomely charged pen and the pact. You have no idea how many were lost prematurely through infection. Hmm, said Mr. Feathersmith, rolling down his sleeve and getting ready to sign. He might as well go through with it, the sooner the better. Your transportation, she added, handing him a folding railroad ticket with a weird assortment of long defunct or merged railroads on it, queer dates and destinations. But he saw that it ended where and when he wanted to go. Grand Central Station, track 48, 1034 tonight. Better give him some cash, suggested Satan hauling out a roll of bills and handing them to her. Mr. Feathersmith looked at them with fast-rising anxiety. The sight of them shook him to the foundations, for they were large, blanket-like sheets of paper, none smaller than a fifty, and many with yellow backs. Satan handed over a coin purse, in which were some gold pieces and six or eight big silver dollars. Mr. Feathersmith had completely forgotten that they used such money in the old days. Pennies and dollar bills were unknown in the West, and fives and tens in paper so rare as to be refused by shopkeepers. It rattled him so that he did not notice when Satan disappeared, and he allowed himself to be ushered out in a mumbling daze by the little witch. By train time, though, he had cheered up. There was just a little journey halfway across the continent to be negotiated, and the matter of the forty years. No doubt that would occur during the night, as a miracle of sorts. He let the red cap carry his luggage aboard the streamlined flyer, and snugged himself down in his compartment. He had not had to bother with having clothes of the period made to order, for the witch had intimated that those details would be taken care of automatically. His next job was to compose the story he was going to tell to explain his return to Cliffordsville. Besides other excellent reasons, he had chosen a particular time for his rejuvenation so as to not run foul of himself in his earlier personality or any of his family. It had been just at the close of the Spanish War 
that both parents had died of yellow fever, leaving him an orphan, and in possession of the old homestead and the parental bank account. He had lost little time in selling the former and withdrawing the latter. After that, he had shaken the dust of Cliffordsville from his feet for what he thought was to be all time. By 1902 there was no member of the Feathersmith family residing in the county. His return, therefore, would be regarded merely as an ordinary return. He would give some acceptable explanations, then take up where he had left off. Sooner or later, he would pull out again, probably to Detroit, to get in on the ground floor with Henry Ford, and he thought it would be a good idea too, to grab himself some US steel, General Motors, and other comers-to-be. He licked his lips in anticipation of the killing he would make in the subsequent World War I years when he could ride the Bethlehem all the way to the top, pyramiding as he went, without a tremor of fear. He also thought with some elation of how much fun it would be to get reacquainted with Daisy Norton, the girl he might have married if he had but stayed in Cliffordsville. She was cold to him then, but that was because her father was a rich aristocrat and looked down upon the struggling Feathersmiths. But this time, he would marry her and the Norman Acres under which the oil fields lay. After that, he had undressed automatically and climbed into his berth. He let his feverish anticipations run on, getting dozier all the time. He suddenly recalled that he really should have seen the doctor before leaving, but dismissed it with a happy smile. By the time he had hit his upper twenties, he was done with whooping cough, measles and mumps. It had been all these years since, before he required the services of a doctor again. He made a mental note that when he next reached sixty, he would take a few precautions, and with that happy thought, he dropped off into sound sleep. The Limited slid on through the night, silently and jarless. Thanks to its air conditioning, good springs, well-turned wheels, smooth traction, rock-ballasted roadbed and heavy rails, it went like the wind. For hundreds of miles the green lights of block signals flickered by, but now and again another train would thunder by on an eastbound track. Mr. Feathersmith gave no thought to those things, as he pillowed deeper into the soft blankets, or worried about the howling blizzard raging outside. The Limited would get there on time, and with the minimum of fuss. That particular Limited went fast and far that night. Mysteriously, it must have covered in excess of a thousand miles, and got well off its usual route. For when Mr. Feathersmith did wake, along toward dawn, things were uncannily different. To begin with, the train was lurching and rocking violently from side to side, and there was a persistent slapping of the flat wheel underneath. The blizzard had abated somewhat, but the car was cold. He lifted the curtain a bit, and looked out on a snow-streaked hilly landscape that strongly suggested Arkansas. Then the train stopped suddenly in the middle of a field, and men came running alongside with lanterns. A hotbox, he heard one call, which struck him as odd, for he had not heard of hotboxes for a long time. After about an hour, and after prolonged whistling, the train slowly gathered way again. By that time, Mr. Feathersmith noticed that his berth had changed during the night. It was an old-fashioned fore-and-aft berth, with an upper pressing down upon it. He discovered he was wearing a flannel nightgown too, another item of his past he had failed to remember. It had been so long since he had changed to silk pyjamas, but by then, the porter was going through the car and rousing all the passengers. Gooch Junction in half an hour, folks, he was saying, 
Got to get up now. They dropped the sleeper there. Mr. Feathersmith groaned and got up. Yes, yes, of course. Three sleepers were the exception, not the rule forty years ago. He found his underwear, red flannel union suit it was, and his shirt, a stiff-bosomed affair with detachable cuffs and a complicated arrangement of cuff holders. His shoes were congress gaiters with elastic in the sides and his suit of black broadcloth beginning to turn green. He got on the lower half of it and bethought himself of his morning shave. He fished under the berth for his bag and found it, a rusty old gladstone duly converted as promised but there was no razor in it of any type he dared use. There was a set of straight razors and strops, and a mug for soap, but he would not trust himself to operate with them. The train was much too rough for that, but he had to wash, so he climbed out of the berth bumping others and found the lavatory. It was packed with half-dressed men in the process of shaving. The basins were miserable affairs of marble, and supplied by creaky pumps that delivered a tablespoonful of water at a time. The car was finished in garish quartered oak, mahogany, mother of pearl, and other bright woods, fitted into the most atrocious inlays Mr. Feathersmith could have imagined. The taste in decoration, he realised, had made long steps since 1902. His companions were drummers, heavy well-fed men all, One was in dry goods, one in coffee, tea and spices, another in whiskey, and two of the rest in patent medicines. Their conversation touched on Brian and free silver, and one denounced Theodore Roosevelt's imperialism, said it was all wrong for us to annex distant properties like the Sandwich Islands and the Philippines. One man thought that Aguinaldo was a hero, another that Funston was the greatest general of all time. But what worried the most was whether they would get to Gooch Junction at all, and if so, how much late. We're only an hour behind now, said the whiskey drummer, but the brakeman told me there's a bad wreck up ahead, and it might take them all day to clear it. Many killed? Nah, just a freight engine crew and brakeman, and about a dozen tramps, that's all. Shucks. They won't hold us up for that. They'll just pile the stuff up and burn it. It was ten when they reached the junction, which consisted of only a signal tower, a crossing, and several sidings. There was no diner on, but the butcher had a supply of candy paper, thin ham sandwiches on stale bread, and soda pop. If he did not care for those or peanuts, he didn't eat. Dropping the sleeper took a long time, and much backing and filling, during which the locomotive ran off the rails and had to be jockeyed back on. Mr. Feathersmith was getting pretty disgusted by the time he reached the day coach, and found he had to share a seat with a raw farm boy in overalls and a sloppy old felt hat. The boy had an aroma that Mr. Feathersmith had not smelled for a long, long time and then he noticed that the aroma prevailed in other quarters, and it came to him all of a sudden, that the day was Thursday, and considerably removed from the last Saturday and presumptive baths. It was about that time that Mr. Feathersmith became aware that he himself had been unchanged, except for wardrobe and accessories. He had expected to wake up youthful, but he did not let it worry him unduly, as he imagined the devil would come through when he had gone all the way back. He tried to get a paper from the butcher, but all there were were day-old St. Louis papers, and the news was chiefly local. He looked for the financial section, and only found a quarter of a column where a dozen railroad bonds were listed. The editor seemed to ignore the Orient and Europe altogether, and there was very little about Congress. After that, he settled down and tried to get used to the temperature. At one end of the car, there was a pot-bellied cast-iron stove, kept roaring by volunteer stokers. 
but despite its ruddy colour and the tropic heat in the two seats adjacent, the rest of the car was bitter cold. The train dragged on all day, stopping often on bleak sidings and waiting for oncoming trains to pass. He noticed on the blackboards of the stations they passed that they were now five hours late and getting later. But no one seemed to worry. It was the expected. Mr. Feathersmith discovered he had a great turnip of a gold watch in the pocket of his waistcoat, a gorgeously flowered satin affair, incidentally, and the watch was anchored across his front by a chain heavy enough to grace the bows of a young battleship. He consulted it often, but it was no help. They arrived at Florence, where they should have been before noon, just as the sun was setting. Everybody piled out of the train to take advantage of the twenty-minute stop to eat at the dining house there. The food was abundant, fried ham and fried steaks, cold turkey, roast venison and fried chicken, and slabs of fried salt pork. But it was all too heavy and greasy for his worn stomach. The fact that the vegetables consisted of four kinds of boiled beans, plus cabbage, reminded him that he did not have his vitamin tablets with him. He asked for asparagus, but people only looked amused. That was stuff for the rich, and it came in little cans. No, no asparagus. Fish. At breakfast they might have salt mackerel. They could open a can of salmon. What would do? He looked at the enormous flowery biscuits and the heavy pitchers of honey and sorghum molasses and a bowl of grits, and decided he would just have a glass of milk. The butter he never even considered, as it was a pale anemic salvy substance. They brought him an immense tumbler of buttermilk, and he had to make the best of that. By the time they were back in the cars the brakeman was going down the aisle lighting the lamps, The gas had a frightful odour, but no one seemed to mind. It was up-to-date, not the smelly kerosene they used on some lines. The night wore on, and in due time the familiar landscape of old Cliffordsville showed up outside the window. Another item he discovered he had forgotten was that Cliffordsville had been there before the railroad was run through. On account of curves and grades, The company had bypassed the town by a couple of miles, so that the station, or depot, stood that distance away. It would have been as good a way as any to approach the town of his childhood, except that on this day, the snow had turned to drizzling rain. The delightful clay roads were all right in dry weather, but a mass of bottomless sticky rutted mud on a day like this. Mr. Feathersmith walked out onto the open platform of the car and down its steps. He viewed the sodden station and its waterlogged open platform with misgiving. There was but one rig that had come to meet the train. It was the Planters Hotel bus, a rickety affair with facing fore and aft seats, approaching from the rear by three steps and grab irons a la Black Mariah. The driver had his storm curtains up, but they were only fastened by little brass gimmicks at the corners and flapped abominably. There were four stout horses drawing the vehicle, but they were spattered with mud up to the belly and the wheels were encrusted with foot-thick adhesions of clay. "'Stranger here?' asked the driver as he gathered up his reins and urged the animals to break the bus out of the quagmire it had sunk down in. I've been here before, said Mr. Feathersmith, wondering savagely why, back in those good old days, somebody had not enough gumption to grade and gravel surface this road. Does Mr. Toller still run the hotel? Yep, swell hotel he's got too. They put in an elevator last year. That was a help, thought Mr. Feathersmith. As he remembered the place, it had twenty-foot ceilings, and was three stories high. With his heart, at least for the first day here, he was just as happy at not having to climb those weary steep stairs 
and now that he thought of it, the planter's hotel was a darn good hotel for its day and time. People said there was nothing like it, closer than Dallas. The drive-in took the best part of two hours. The wind tore at the curtains, and gusts of rain blew in. Three times they bogged down completely, and the driver had to get out and put his shoulder to the wheel as the four horses lay belly flat against the oozy mud and strained as if their hearts and backs would break. But eventually they drew up before the hotel, passing through streets that were but slightly more passable than the road. Mr. Feathersmith was shocked at the utter absence of concrete or stone sidewalks. Many blocks boasted no sidewalks at all. The others were plank affairs. A couple of boys lounged before the hotel, and upon the arrival of the bus got into a tussle as to which should carry the Gladstone bag. The tussle was a draw, with the result that they both carried it inside, hanging it between them. The hotel was a shattering disappointment from the outset. Mr. Feathersmith's youthful memories proved very false indeed. The lobby's ceiling was thirty feet high, not twenty, and supported by two rows of castine fluted columns, topped with crudely done Corinthian caps. The bases and caps had been gilded once, but they were tarnished now, and the fly-speckled marble painting of the shafts was anything but convincing. The floor was alternate diamond squares of marble, black with blue, and spotted white enameled cast-iron cuspidors of great capacity, whose vicinity attested the poor marksmanship of Cliffordsville's chewers of the filthy weed. The marble-topped desk was decorated by a monstrous ledger, an inkpot and pens, and presided over by a supercilious young man with slick-down hair, neatly parted in the middle, and a curly thick brown moustache. A three-dollar room, of course, sir, queried the clerk, giving the register a twirl and offering the pen. Of course, snapped Mr. Feathersmith. The best, and with bath. With bath, sir, depreciated the young man, as if taking it as a joke. Why, there is a bath on every floor. Just arrange with the bellboy. The old financier grunted. He was forgetting things again. He glanced over his shoulder toward the rear of the lobby, where a red-hot stove was closely surrounded by a crowd of drummers. It seemed to be the only spot of warmth in the place, but he was intent on his bath, so he accepted the huge key and tag, and followed the boy to the elevator. That proved to be a loosely woven open cage affair in an open shaft, and operated by a cable that ran vertically through it. The boy slammed the outer door, there was no inner, and grasped the cable with both hands and pulled. There was a throaty rumble down below, and the car began gradually to ascend. Inch by inch, it rose, quivering, at about half the speed of a modern New York escalator. Mr. Feathersmith fumed and fidgeted, but there was no help for it. The elevators of forty years ago were like that. It was just too bad his room was 303. It was big enough, twenty by twenty by twenty, a perfect cube containing two gigantic windows which only a Sandow could manage. The huge double bed, with heavy mahogany head and footpieces, was lost in it. Several rocking chairs stood about, and a rag rug was on the floor, but the piece de resistance of the room was the marble-topped washstand. On it rested a porcelain bowl and a pitcher, and beside it a slop jar. Mr. Feathersmith knew without looking what the cabinet beneath it contained. He walked over to it and looked into the pitcher. The water had a crust of ice on top of it. The room had not a particle of heat. I want a bath, right away, he said to the bellboy. Hot. Yes, sir, said the boy, 
scratching his head. But I don't know if the chambermaids got round to cleaning it yet. They ain't many wants a bath till tomorrow. I can go and look though. I've got some laundry too. I want it back tomorrow. Oh mister, you must be from New York. There ain't no such thing here. There's a steam laundry, but they only take up Mondays and get it back to you on Saturday. My ma can do it for you, but that'll have to be Monday too. There's mighty little she ever bends. Skip it, snorted Mr. Feathersmith, and see about that bath. He was relearning his lost youth fast. There had been times when metropolitan flunkyism had annoyed him, but he would give something for some of it now. He pulled out a dime and gave it to the boy, who promptly shuffled out for a conference with the maid over the unheard-of demand of a bath on a Friday afternoon. One look at the bathroom was enough. It was twenty feet high too, but only eight feet long by three wide, so that it looked like the bottom of a dark well. A single carbon filament lamp dangled from a pair of black insulated wires led across the ceiling and gave a dim orange light, as did the similar one in the bedroom. The bathtub was a tin affair, round bottom and standing on four cast iron legs. It was dirty and fed by a half-inch pipe that dribbled a pencil-thin stream of water. In about two hours, Mr. Feathersmith estimated his bath would be drawn and ready provided. Of course, that the maid should remove in the meantime the mass of buckets, pans, brooms, mops and scrub rags that she stored in the place. One glance at the speckled, choked other piece of plumbing in the place made him resolve he would use the gadget underneath his own washstand. I can bring hot water, a pitcher or so, suggested the boy, if you want it. Never mind, said Mr. Feathersmith. He remembered now that a barber shop was just around the corner, and they had bathtubs as well. It would be easier to go there, since he needed a shave anyway, and pay an extra quarter and get it over with. He slept in his new bed that night, and found it warm despite the frigidness of the room, for the blankets of the time were honest wool and thick, but it was the only crumb of comfort he could draw from his new surroundings. The next morning, Mr. Feathersmith's troubles truly began. He got up, broke the crust of ice in his pitcher, and gaspingly washed his face and hands. He waited tediously for the slow-motion elevator to come up and take him down to breakfast. That meal was inedible too, owing to its heaviness. He marvelled that people could eat so much so early in the morning. He managed some oatmeal and buttered toast, but passed up all the rest. He was afraid the grapefruit was unheard of. As to the other fruits, there were apples. Transportation and storage had evidently not solved the out-of-season fruit and vegetable problem. It also worried him that Satan had done nothing so far about his rejuvenation. He got up the same gnarled, veiny hands, florid face, and bald head. He wished he had insisted on a legible copy of the contract at the time, instead of waiting for the promised confirmation copy. But all that was water over the dam. He was here. So, pending other developments, he must see about establishing his daily comforts and laying the foundation for his fortune. There were several things he wanted. To acquire the old Feathersmith homestead. To marry Daisy Norton. To bring in the Cliffordsville oil field. Wasn't there already Spindletop, Batson and Sour Lake making millions? Then go back to New York, where after all, there was a civilization of a sort, however primitive. He took them in order, representing himself as a granduncle of his original self, he inquired at the local real estate man's office. Yes, the Feathersmith place was for sale, cheap, and the former cook Anna was living near it, 
unavailable for hire. It did not take Mr. Feathersmith long to get to the local livery stable and hire a two-horse rig to take him out there. The sight of the place was a shock to him. The road out was muddy in stretches and rocky and bumpy in others. At last, they came to a sagging plank gate in a barbed wire fence and the driver dragged it open. The great trees Mr. Feathersmith had looked back on with fond memory proved to be post oaks and cedars. There was not a majestic elm or pecan tree in the lot. The house was even more of a disappointment. Instead of the vast mansion he remembered, it was a rambling run-down building whose porches sagged and where the brown remnants of last summer's honeysuckle still clung to a tangle of cotton strings used for climbers. They should have a neat pergola built for them, he thought, and entered. The interior was worse. One room downstairs had a fireplace. Upstairs, there was a single sheet iron wood stove. What furniture that was left was incredibly tawdry. There was no telephone and no light except kerosene wick lamps. The house lacked closets or a bath, and the backyard was adorned with a crazy chic sail of the most uninviting pattern. A deserted hog pen and a dilapidated stable completed the assets. Mr. Feathersmith decided he wouldn't live there again on any terms. But a wave of sentimentality drove him to visit Anna, the former cook. She, at least, would not have depreciated like the house had done in a paltry two years. He learned she lived in a shack close by, so he went. He introduced himself as an elder of the Feathersmith family and wanted to know if she would cook and wash for him. I don't want anything to do with any kind of Feathersmith, she asserted. They're trash, all of them. The old man and the missus weren't so bad but that young skunk of a jack sold out before they were hardly cold, and snuck out of town. We've never seen or heard tell of him since. Just leave me alone, that's all I ask. And with that, she slammed the cabin door in his face. So, thought Mr. Feathersmith, well he guessed he didn't want her either. He went back to town and straight to the bank. Having discovered he had $3,000 in big bills and gold, a sizable fortune for Cliffordsville of the period, since the first national bank was capitalised for only ten, he went boldly in to see Mr. Norton. He meant to suggest that they jointly exploit the Norton plantations for the oil that was under it, but on the very moment he was entering the portals of the bank, he suddenly remembered that the Cliffordsville field was a very recent one, circa 1937, and therefore deep, whereas Spindletop had been discovered by boring shallow wells, a thousand feet and mostly less. Later day wells had depths of something over a mile. In 1902, the suggestion of drilling 6,000 feet or more would have been simply fantastic. There was neither the equipment nor the men to undertake it. Mr. Feathersmith gulped the idea down and decided instead to make a deposit and content himself with polite inquiries about the family. Mr. Norton was much impressed with the other's get-up and the cash deposit of $3,000. That much currency was not to be blinked at in the days before the Federal Reserve Board Act. When money stringencies came, and they did often, it was actual cash that counted, not the ephemeral thing known as credit. He listened to Mr. Feathersmith's polite remarks and observed that he would consider it an honour to permit his wife and daughter to receive the new depositor at their home. Personally fingering the beloved banknotes, Mr. Norton ushered out his new customer with utmost suavity. The call was arranged and Mr. Feathersmith put in his appearance at exactly 4.30pm of the second day following. Ransacking his mind for memories of customs of the times, he bethought himself to take along a piece of sheet music, a pound of mixed candies, 
and a bouquet of flowers. The visit was a flop. Befitting his new status as an important depositor, he took a rubber-tied city hack to the door, and then to avoid the charge of sinful extravagance, he dismissed the fellow, telling him to come back at five. After that, bearing his gifts, he manoeuvred the slippery pathway of pop bottles planted neck down, bordered by bricks and desiccated rose bushes. He mounted the steps and punched the doorbell. After that, there was a long silence, but he knew that there was tittering inside and that several persons pulled the curtain softly and surveyed him surreptitiously. At length the door opened cautiously, and an old housekeeper led him into the parlour. It was a macabre room, smelling of mould. She seated him in a horsehair-covered straight chair, then went about the business of opening the inside folding blinds. After that, she flitted from the room. After a long wait, Mrs. Norton came in, stately and dignified, and introduced herself whereupon she plumped herself down on another chair and stared at him. A few minutes later, the giggling Daisy came in and was duly introduced. She also bowed stiffly, without offering a hand, and sat down. Then came the grandmother. After that, they just sat the man at one end of the room and the other three sedate women in a row at the other their knees and ankles tightly compressed together and their hands folded in their laps. Mr. Feathersmith got up and tried to manage a courtly bow while he made his presentations, thinking they were awfully stuffy. He thought so particularly because he had formerly had Daisy out on a buggy ride and knew what an expert kisser she could be when the moon was right. But things were different he introduced various possible topics of conversation, such as the weather, the latest French styles and so forth, but they promptly, and with the utmost finality, disposed of each with a polite agreeing, Yes, sir. It was maddening, and then he saw that Daisy Norton was an empty-headed little doll who could only giggle and kiss as required, and say, Yes, sir. She had no conception of economics, politics, world affairs. The thought took him back to those hellcats of modern women, like Miss Tomlinson, in charge of his Wall Street office force, the very type he wanted to get away from, but who was alert and alive. He listened dully while Daisy played on the black square piano and saw the embroideries her fond mother displayed. After that, he ate the little cakes and the coffee they brought then left. That was Daisy Norton. Another balloon pricked. On the trip back to the hotel, he was upset by seeing a number of yellow flags hung out on houses. It puzzled him at first, until he remembered that that was the signal for smallpox within. It was another thing he had forgotten about the good old days. They had smallpox, yellow fever, diphtheria, scarlet fever, and other assorted diseases that raged without check except constitutional immunity. There was the matter of typhoid too, which depended on water and milk supply surveillance, and it came to him that so long as Satan chose to keep him aged, he must live chiefly on milk. Cliffordsville, he well remembered, annually had its wave of typhoid, what with its using unfiltered creek water and the barbarian habit of digging wells in the vicinity of cesspools. Mr. Feathersmith was troubled. Didn't he have enough physical complaints as it was? He was reminded even more forcibly of that shortly afterward when he came to sitting up on the floor of a barroom with someone forcing whiskey into his mouth. You fainted, mister, but you'll be all right now. Get me a doctor, roared Mr. Feathersmith. It's ephedrine I want, not whiskey. The doctor didn't come. There was only the one, and he was out miles in the country, 
administering to a case of cramp colic, a mysterious disease, later to achieve the more fashionable notoriety of acute appendicitis. The patient died, unhappily, but that did not bring the doctor back to town any quicker. The next morning Mr. Feathersmith made a last desperate effort to come back. There was a bicycle mechanic in town who had recently established a garage in order to take care of Mr. Norton's lumbering Ford and Dr. Simpson's buggy-like Holtzman. Those crude automobiles, thought it a triumph to make ten miles without a tow, had to be cranked by hand and were lighted at night by kerosene carriage lamps or acetylene bicycle lamps. Why not devise a self-starter? suggested Mr. Feathersmith, recalling that millions had been made out of them. A gadget you press with the foot, you know, that will crank the engine with an electric motor. Why not wings? asked the sailing mechanic. He did not realise that both were practical, or that Mr. Feathersmith had seen better days. The trouble with Mr. Feathersmith was that he had always been a promoter and a financier, with a little or no knowledge of the mechanical end of the game. It works, he insisted solemnly. A storage battery, a motor, and a gill hooky to crank the motor. Think it over, it would make us rich. So would perpetual motion, answered the garage man, and that was that. Dr. Simpson, when contact was made, was even a poorer consolation. Ephedrine? Digitalis? Vitamins? Thyroxin? You're talking gibberish. I don't know what you mean. Naturally, a man of your age is likely to get short of breath at times, even faint. But shocks, Mr. Feathersmith. Don't let that bother you. I've known men to live to a hundred. That didn't stack up as well as you. Take it easy. Rest plenty with a nap every afternoon, and you'll be all right. We're only young once, you know. When Mr. Feathersmith found that the good doctor had nothing to offer better than a patented tonic and poultices for his rheumatism, he thereafter let him strictly alone. The situation as to vitamins and glandular extracts was worse than hopeless. The dietitians had not got around yet to finding out about calories, let alone those. Mr. Feathersmith worried more and more over Satan's inexplicable delay in bestowing youth befitting the age, for Forfin had insisted the old boy would fulfil his promise if the price was paid. But until that was done, the old financier could only wait and employ his time as profitably as he could. He kept ransacking his brains for things he could invent, but every avenue proved to be a blind alley. He mentioned the possibility of flying to the circle that sat above the lobby stove, but then scornfully laughed it down. It was an obvious impossibility, except for the dirigible gas bags Santas Dumont was playing with in France. He tried to organise a company to manufacture aluminum, but unfortunately, no one had heard of the stuff, except one fellow who had been off to school and seen a lump of it in the chemical laboratory. It was almost as expensive as gold, and what good was it? Mr. Feathersmith realised then that if he was in possession of a 1942 automobile, no one could duplicate it, for the many alloys were unknown and the foundry and machine shop practice necessary were undeveloped. There was nothing to paint it with but carriage paint, slow drying and sticky. There were no fuels or lubricants to serve it, or any roads fit to run it on. He played with other ideas, but they all came croppers. He dared not even mention radio. It smacked too much of magic or lunacy and he most certainly did not want to be locked up as a madman in an insane asylum of the era. If standard medicine was just beginning to crawl, psychiatry was simply non-existent, so he kept quiet about his speculations.
Since life had become so hard and he was cut off from any normal intercourse with his fellow townsmen, he yearned for good music. But alas, that likewise was not to be had outside one or two metropolitan orchestras. He went once to church and heard a homegrown self-taught soprano caterwaul in a quavering voice. After that, he stayed away. He caught himself wishing for a good radio programme, and he had altered considerably his standards of what was good. A week rolled by. During it, he had another stroke that was almost his last. The New York doctor had warned him that if he did not obey all the rules as to diet and other palliatives, he might expect to be taken off at any time. Mr. Feathersmith knew that his days were numbered, and the number was far fewer than it would have been if he had remained in the modern age he thought was so unbearable. But still, there was the hope that the devil would yet do the right thing by him. That hope was finally and utterly blasted the next day. Mr. Feathersmith was in the grip of another devastating fit of weakness, and knew that shortly he would be unable to breathe and would therefore fall into a faint and die. But just before his last bit of strength and speck of consciousness faded, there was a faint pop overhead, and an envelope fluttered down into his lap. He looked at it, and though the stamp and cancellation were blared and illegible, he saw the return address in the corner was Bureau of Complaints and Adjustments, Gehenna. His trembling fingers tore the missive open, a copy of his contract fell out into his lap. He scanned it hurriedly, as before it seemed flawless. Then he discovered a tiny memorandum clipped to its last page. He read it, and knew his heart would stand no more. It was from the cute little witch of Fifth Avenue. Dearest Snooky Wookie, His nibs complains you keep on bellyaching. That's not fair. You said you wanted to be where you are, and there you are. You wanted your memory unimpaired. Can we help it if your memory is lousy? And not once, old dear. Did you cheap about also having your youth restored? So that lets us out. Be seeing you in hell, old thing. Cheerio. He stared at it with fast-dimming eyes. The little witch. The bad... Badgering little, and then an all-engulfing blackness saved him from his mumbling alliteration.